All right, anyway, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again this morning because you're worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and majesty, dominion forever and ever. We thank you for revealing yourself in the person of Christ in our salvation. We thank you for the faithfulness of Christ, his obedience to the cause of our salvation. He did not obey, just to obey. He did not need to obey, not because he could do any other but to obey, but he did all things that he may redeem us from every lawless deed from which the law of Moses could not redeem us. And we come not as trophies of men, but trophies of God's glorious grace. And we pray that you cause us by spirit to praise you for what you have done and who you are. May you grant us understanding of your truth. May you grant us faith and dependence towards this truth. May you grant us joy in this truth. We pray, Lord, for encouragement in all things, all matters of life as they come to us who are God's people to try and test our faith. But we know that we shall not fail because of the Christ who died and resurrected. And we thank you now that we've come to hear from you, from your word. And I pray that you grant me the grace to speak and to speak truthfully and faithfully and for your people to hear only that which is needful and faithful. We honor you, glorify you, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, one and all. Good to be back. Be praying for me that the Lord continues to strengthen me. But I believe that I will have a lot of strength to deliver God's message that he has given me. And there's a problem when I don't preach for one Sunday. I usually come back with a lot of energy, a lot of strength. It just happens that way. When I'm not talking about the things of Christ, I don't feel very good. The best times for me is when I am writing my message, when I'm preaching my message, and I'm editing my message. I'm not lying to you. That's the times that I feel the best. And so, whilst I'm at my best, <laughs> let's be talking about Jesus. So this morning we're going to be back in Romans 4. Romans chapter 4, verses 16 to 20. Maybe 21. Romans 4, verses 16 to 21. Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, recorded for us and said, For this reason, it is by faith, so that it may be by grace, with the result that the promise may be certain to all their descendants, 
not only to those who are under the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the presence of God whom he believed, the God who makes the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. Against hope, Abraham believed in hope with the result that he became the father of many nations according to the pronouncement, so will your descendants be. Without being weak in faith, he considered his own body as dead because he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief about the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He was fully convinced that what God promised, he was able, he was also able to do. And that's the word of the Lord. And we have one title. We could have two, maybe three, but I determined to have just one. He did not waver in unbelief. He did not waver in unbelief. We are back again to the most pressing matter that faces everyone who is born of a woman and that is how shall they stand justified from their sins that is pay for their sins and be cleared of their guilt and have title to God's inheritance God's inheritance of eternal life and everything that comes with it. How shall they stand justified by a holy, just and righteous God who just does not forgive sin without proper payment? In other words, how shall you and I make things right with him to his satisfaction. That's the question that every preacher so-called is supposed to be answering for God's people. Because God has answered it. And whatever we propose for a solution, if it does not satisfy God, it is the way of death. It is the way of condemnation. And many have concocted many prescriptions in an attempt to answer that question. But all prescriptions that have come from the mind or hands of men have always fallen short of satisfying God's demands of perfect holiness and righteousness. So God proposed for himself a solution, a solution in his own mind, by his own counsel, not because men and women had failed, but because men and women would always be clueless of what God requires, clueless of what would satisfy 
his righteousness and holiness. God does not react to what people do, especially in the matter of salvation. God does not give salvation in reaction to what you do. So God from eternity devised a solution that is agreeable with his own nature that does not violate the perfection of his beauty, his justice, his holiness, righteousness, and ultimately his glory. For all that is good and perfect about God is captured in his glory. And glory means the weight of the perfection of his attributes. The weight of the beauty and perfection of his attributes. So gospel preaching then is a declaration or is the declaration or proclamation or broadcasting or a heralding of the divine solution to sin as it is found in Christ Jesus. I'm going to have to repeat that statement. Gospel preaching is a declaration. Imagine a news reader at 6 p.m., 7 p.m. The main news, they are seated on their desk and they are reading the main news of the day. The news of what happened in the day. So the Holy Spirit is preaching the gospel as the main news, the broadcasting of the divine solution to sin in the person of Christ is a broadcasting of an event that already happened, a work that already was completed by the person of Christ. So if anybody is not approaching the gospel, it's declaration that way, they don't understand the matter. Apostle Paul was separated by God to declare this glorious truth and said, well, salvation has nothing to do with what sinners do. Have done, are doing, or will do. It has nothing to do with that. Why? Because they're sinners. And sinners by nature cannot satisfy requirements that require perfection by reason of them being sinners. Just the fact that you and I are sinners disqualifies us from being able to meet any condition of salvation. And the law was given to prove that fact by demanding total conformity to it and cursing everyone who could not keep it, and saying, if you miss one point of the law, you are guilty of the whole thing, you are condemned, you are cursed. And yet, the same law that people say they are doing gave no ability, it gave no cheese, <laughs> no government cheese, it gave no milk, no push, 
for the sinner to obey it. And consequently, the law mercilessly condemns everyone who breaks it. Yeah? It puts all sinners in prison from which they cannot pay their way out. You cannot pay your way out of condemnation. And that is why the Bible uses the language of redemption. Because redemption is the paying for what? Paying for those who were in captivity. Redemption is setting free by way of payment of a price, a ransom price. So the way that satisfies God, the way that is agreeable with his nature, is the way of Christ, the way of the cross, the way of his righteousness, the way of imputation, the imputation of sin to Christ and of righteousness to the sinner. They go together. Imputation of sin to Christ goes hand in hand with the positive side of things. You have the negative side of imputation of sin to Christ. And you have the positive side, the imputation of righteousness to us. And this way was not a backup plan for man just in case we failed. God is not a doomsday prepper. Okay? He does not have contingent plans. The cross was always the way to bring righteousness and eternal life to all his elect. And this way was the only way to the Father, the only way to a righteous standing before him. It is not of works of any kind done in man, even by God himself. That is not how it works. So Apostle Paul was preaching this matter to a people who among them were Jews who thought they had a standing before God by way of Moses, by way of their own obedience to the law. And Paul said, no, that is not how this matter works. That is not how your father Abraham was declared to be righteous before God. It happened by a different principle that is apart from the law apart from your own obedience. And that principle is the principle of imputation. That is, being given an alien righteousness, in other words, the righteousness of another. And this was also true of your father David, who praised God for the non-imputation of his own sin to himself. And consequently, David found himself in good standing with God despite his many sins. And this happened by this principle by which the sin of David was not imputed to his account. 
The sin of David was not imputed to his account. There was no record of it in his account. And so that is the same principle by which you have been saved. God did not impute your sin to your account. The blessed man is the one to whom God does not impute their sin. It's not there. Yes, you are doing it, but it's not there. Rather, in the context of David, given the history of redemption, God was forbearing. He was long-suffering until the appearance of Christ to whom the sins were imputed and paid. And if you still remember what we taught from, is it Second Samuel 12? David got in trouble, but Nathan came and said, the Lord has forgiven your sin, but the son who shall be born to you shall surely die. And the son of David was Christ Jesus who was going to come and die in the place of David. Okay, Thus, David and Abraham both acquired a standing before God by a righteousness that had nothing to do with their own obedience to God. But God's own obedience of faithfulness to himself in the person of Christ Jesus, only God can obey God. Only God can give to God what God requires. And that's why Christ Jesus was despised to come and obey in our place. And it is this matter that is the hardest and impossible to believe for a sinner that God will bless them and has blessed them unchangeably, immutably, apart from their own obedience, given what they know about themselves, given what they experience themselves with respect to their sin. And God saying, no, it's okay. <laughs> it is well. My transaction of salvation is not dependent on your own performance. It's very hard to, impossible to believe. But that's the good news of the gospel. So we'll begin here in Romans 4, verse 16. Paul says, for this reason... It is by faith, so that it may be by grace, with the result that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are under the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham is very, very important if we are to really understand the gospel he is very central to God's proclamation of the matter of Christ. So if we understand Christ well, we understand Abraham. And if we understand Abraham well, we also have a very clear understanding of Christ. So Abraham found himself righteous 
through the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith is the righteousness of doing nothing to acquire that righteousness. Because a lot of people preach faith as if it is about doing something to get the righteousness. But the proper context is saying it is the righteousness of doing nothing to cause that righteousness because that righteousness is done by someone else. I know people do not want to hear about doing nothing for their salvation. They do not like a lazy boy gospel. <laughs> and therein lies the offense. The offense of the gospel is in also the fact that it is lazy boy theology. You don't do anything to cause it. So faith agrees with grace because faith brings nothing to grace. Faith is not meritorious. Thus, it is not the condition that the sinner fulfills so that they may change their legal status before God. Your faith is not what changes your legal status before God. Christ is he who changed your legal status before God. It is Mount Calvary. That's the dividing line between condemnation and justification. Is the person of Christ. It is Mount Calvary. That's where the legal change happened. It is not your faith. So grace is what brings salvation. And faith is the God-given ability to believe, to see, to give you conviction that salvation is by grace alone through Christ alone. Faith is given for the sinner to agree with God that salvation is indeed by grace alone. That's faith. So the Jews may have argued and said, but Paul, our father Abraham was circumcised. Thus he was a righteous man through circumcision. Thus tying his justification to some aspect of the law. Since the law also required physical circumcision as had been done to Abraham prior. God had demanded, commanded Abraham that he should be circumcised and all his descendants after him. And the Jews thought this was the righteousness of the gospel. And, and Paul said no. Abraham was accounted as righteous before circumcision on account of God's promise. And this was purposeful on the part of God because God was anticipating bringing uncircumcised people, the Gentiles, into the fold of his people, the church. Thus, Requiring Gentiles to be circumcised would have created a condition of salvation that human beings could and can fulfill of themselves, thus making salvation of works, which is contrary to grace. Thus, the faith of Abraham 
was an example that God was setting forth for both Jew and Gentile and saying righteousness for both elect Jew and Gentile is only by the righteousness of faith, which means the righteousness of imputation. That's what the Bible is saying when it's saying the righteousness of faith. It is that righteousness which comes freely by imputation, the righteousness that comes by way of Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh. So Abraham becomes the father of us all, not because we were born of him physically or spiritually, but because all who are saved possess the same faith that looks to Christ as did Abraham. That's the connection between us and Abraham, that we share the same faith that looked to the one person and the one promise, Christ Jesus. Also, the faith of Abraham does not mean that the elect possess that faith that came from Abraham. Abraham did not give anyone faith because we know from Ephesians 2 that faith is a gift from God freely given to all who are in Christ. So the faith of Abraham is speaking to the nature or character of the faith and what it looked to. The faith of Abraham looked to the promise that was Christ Jesus, the seed of Abraham, by whom all the nations of the world would be blessed by way of salvation. Verse 17 of Romans 4, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Abraham was made the father of many nations through Isaac. And then Jacob and the 12 tribes. But this statement was more encompassing than that in its fulfillment. It had an immediate fulfillment in the nation of Israel, but had a bigger expanded context in the context of salvation. It was speaking of the many nations that will be gathered to God in Christ, consisting of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, who would also possess the faith of Abraham and be called the children of Abraham. But see this. It is God who said, I've made you the father of many nations. And that is saying, Abraham was not a self-made man. I have made you. He owed everything that he was and is to God's doing. God hates self-made man 
when it comes to salvation especially. Yeah? Thus it was not of Abraham's doing, but of God's own doing, as every blessing is from the Father of lights, according to James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variableness, no shadow of turning. So Christ is he who made Abraham to be what he is in salvation history. And Paul continues and says, He is our Father in the presence of God, whom he believed. Again, the emphasis on the fatherhood of Abraham was to break down the theological boundaries that had been put between Jew and Gentile on account of the law with Jews and Israel thinking that Abraham was their own father, not the father of the Gentiles. Which meant that they struggled roughly with the Lord Jesus. They had some rough conversation about this matter of their relation to Abraham. And we can't help but go to the text of John 8 to hear this conversation. John 8, beginning at verse 31. John 8, 31, all the way to 59. Then Jesus said to those Judeans who had believed him, If you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples. And you know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they replied, and have never been anyone's slaves. Liars, they were not telling the truth. They were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. At this time, they were in bondage to Rome. And they also, as Jesus is going to say, were slaves to sin. But they replied and said, we have never been anyone's slaves. How can you say you become free? Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth. Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the family forever. They have no inheritance rights. The slave who does not remain in the family forever is the one who remains under the law. That's what Jesus is saying. If you remain under the law, you remain a slave and you cannot be part of the family of God. That's exactly what Jesus is telling them. But the son remains forever because the son has the right of inheritance. All who are in the son remain forever because the son remains forever. The son never loses his status 
as the firstborn and as the heir of God's inheritance. So all those who are in the Son who remain forever cannot and will not be disinherited. But if you remain under the law, you are a slave and you cannot remain forever. And people say, oh, but the Westminster Confession of Faith says this. and That's foolishness because they did not understand the matter of law and gospel. They did not understand the proper distinction and the implications of law and gospel. The law makes you a slave forever. Verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus saying the law is unto bondage and only he sets free from the condemnation of the law. Christ alone sets free from the law. And what does that mean to be set free? It means to be justified from the condemnation of the law. So Christ justified all his people from the condemnation of the law. He set them free when he showed up. Christ is not setting you free last week or two weeks ago. He set you free when he showed up. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you want to kill me because my teaching makes no progress among you. I'm telling you the things that I have seen while with the Father. As for you, practice the things you have heard from the Father. The truth, according to Jesus, does not make any headway, does not make progress in those that God has not granted repentance. But they will never stop arguing. And when they argue, they argue as if they are arguing for the truth when they are actually arguing in unbelief. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. So the Jews default understanding and identity was with Abraham. That is their resume that they are banking on, that they are standing on and saying we are Abraham's children. Abraham is our father and by extension, God is our father. You can't remove us from Abraham we are the physical descendants of Abraham, Abraham the friend of God. So naturally, we also are the children of God. Jesus replied, If you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the deeds of Abraham. What are those deeds of Abraham? Of believing in Christ, who was the object of Abraham's faith. Jesus is already intimating that their association with Abraham was false in the spiritual sense by saying, if you are that conditional clause, Jesus is onto something. Verse 40. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I had from God. Abraham did not do this. You people are doing the deeds of your father. 
So Jesus introduces a different paternity for them. He takes them on the Maori shore, <laughs> as it were, and says, Abraham is not your father. You have a different father. You have a different paternity. Then they say to Jesus, we were not born of fornication. We were not born as a result of immorality. We only have one father, God himself. You see what they've done? They've moved from Abraham as their father to God and saying, oh, we only have one God, one father who is God himself. We are not born of fornication. What are they saying? They understand what Jesus is saying. And so they want to cut him deep and dismiss him as an illegitimate child, a child of immorality, born of fornication of Mary. So they have some scoop on the controversy around the birth of Jesus. So they thought to use it to their advantage as their nuclear option. This is a nuclear option to silence Jesus. We are not born of fornication. We only have one father, God himself. And that statement is Jesus who should have been saying that, not themselves. That statement belongs to Jesus. Verse 42. Let's see what Jesus says. Jesus replied, If God were your father, you would love me. For I've come from God and am now here. I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. So the Lord dismisses their claim and says, Anyone who is fathered of God will listen to him. Anyone who is born of God will listen to Christ. Verse 43, why don't you understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot accept my teaching. That is the natural human condition. People cannot naturally believe the gospel. Not by their free will, so-called. They cannot understand Christ's teaching. You people are from your father the devil, and you want to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not uphold the truth. There's no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks according to his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus defines their spiritual father for them and says, Contrary to what you think, you are deceived by your father, the devil. Your spiritual paternity is of Satan. You lie. No truth in you as there is no truth in him. And you seek to kill me as he also was a murderer from the beginning. He came. And lied to Adam and Eve. And caused trouble. He was always a liar. From the beginning. Verse 45. 
But because I'm telling you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can prove me guilty of any sin? Who is able to prove that Christ was a sinner? If I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who belongs to God listens and responds to God's words. You don't listen and respond because you do not belong to God. Here, I need you to pay attention to cause and effect. Jesus did not say, you believe and listen to God's words so that you belong to God. You listen and you believe the gospel because you already belong to God. You believe the gospel because you already belong to God. And he says those who do not listen and respond to the truth of Christ, they do so because they don't belong and they never belonged to him. So be careful of the conditionalism. Conditionalism tells you to do certain things. Repent to some level. Then you belong to God. That's not how it works. So that is a very frightening statement by Jesus. Jesus says God's words. In this context, he meant agreeing with what Jesus was claiming about himself. That he was the son of God who had come from God and that he indeed would set men and women free from their sin. And this is a long conversation. And it is not always that you can run away from debating the truth. Because we may not want to argue with people. But once in a while, God will put you in a situation where you have to contend for the truth. And when that happens, it is always ugly. It always turns ugly. People think when you're telling the truth, it's supposed to always be well tied up, very neat, very clean. No, here what is being said to Jesus, you were born of fornication. And they're saying that to God himself. (laughs) Even when Jesus was doing it, Himself, it was not clean. Hear this, verse 48. The Judeans said, or replied, aren't we correct in saying that you are a Samaritan and are possessed by a demon? So from saying he was a child of fornication, they upgraded things to, we are right that you are a Samaritan, a despised, lowly person. And to make matters worse, you are a Samaritan who is demon-possessed. And if they could, they would have said, and your mother also dresses you funny. (laughs) This is how law, this conversation, has degenerated 
And Jesus did not call it off yet to say, okay, all right, guys, let's stop it right here. No. Jesus said, let's get, get it going. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father, and yet you dishonor me. I am not trying to get praise for myself. There's one who demands it, and he also judges. I tell you the solemn truth. If anyone obeys my teaching, he will never see death. And that is a huge claim by Jesus and a claim that will keep him getting in trouble with the Jews. And yet Jesus is telling the truth. Anyone who obeys his teaching will never see death. What is it to obey the teaching of Jesus? It is to believe in him and the testimony that God has given about him. Okay? That is what it means to obey Jesus in that context. It is to believe what God is saying about him because that's the matter of contention between him and the Jews. They're not believing all the claims that he's making about himself. And the one who believes in him will not see death, will not come into the judgment of their sin, have already passed from death unto life, from condemnation unto justification. So God has already judged you. If you belong to Christ, you have already been judged. You shall not see death. Verse 52. Then the Judeans responded, now we know you are possessed by a demon. Now you have just confirmed it. <laughs> Both Abraham and the prophets died. And yet you say, if anyone obeys my teaching, he will never experience death. You aren't greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? And the prophets died too. Who do you claim to be? Who do you think you actually are, Jesus? You come and you're claiming that if you believe in me, you shall not see death, and yet Abraham died. And even the greatest of our prophets, they came and died. Who do you think you are? Right? But in the Main, they're also trying to sort out Jesus. They're trying to figure out who this Jesus is. They understand that Jesus is making some very big claims and suggesting that he was greater than Abraham and the prophets. But this is one of the themes that you want to find in the book of John John is wanting you and every reader to understand that Jesus is greater than all. He is greater than Abraham. He is greater than the prophets. Even in the conversation with the Samaritan woman, she tried to make some comparison to sort out Jesus. 
He said, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this wealth? Okay. So they're trying to sort out who Jesus is because they have not read John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. The Samaritan woman did not have John 1, verse 1 to 3, and neither did the Jews. Jesus replied, verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is worthless. The one who glorifies me is my father, about whom you people say he is our God. Yet you do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Or Jesus would be blocked on Facebook. Because Facebook does not want you to use liar anymore. I did that and they put me in Facebook jail for one month. I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I obey his teaching. Your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Then the Judeans replied, You are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth. Before Abraham was, I am. Then they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden from them and went out of the temple area. So what was the Conversation stopper. Jesus' claim of deity. Before Abraham was, I am, not I was. Very purposeful on the part of Jesus. And that to say, I am the God of the burning bush. I am the God of Moses. The I am of Moses. And the Jews understand exactly what Jesus was claiming. And they say, this is nuts. (laughs) This Jesus, who is not even looking like he's 50 years old, is claiming to be the God of our fathers. He could use some stoning for blasphemy. Because that's what they picked up stones for. Because they understood that Jesus was claiming to be the God of Genesis, not of Exodus 4, I believe, the burning bush. I am that I am. And yet the conversation is around the paternity of the Jews with respect to Abraham and by extension to God. And the Jews were heavily invested in being physical descendants of Abraham. And by this, they thought they had automatic salvation. And that is why also Apostle John had earlier said this in John 1, verse 10 to 13. Let's read that. John 1, 10 to 13. John says of the Logos, who became flesh. He was in the world, 
and the word was made through him and the word did not know him he came to his own that is the jews in this particular context and his own did not receive him but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of god to those who believe in his name and all armenians the armenian bible ends in vestkov of john 1 it always ends in john 12 it never goes to verse 18 which says we were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god the armenians stop at verse 12 to prove free will because they know that if they go to verse 18, it undoes the free will understanding. And here what the New English Translation renders the same verses, verse 12 and 13 of John 1, the NET says, But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become children to become God's children, children not born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. And that statement was saying salvation is not a family trust that is handed down from generation to generation nor is it caused by anything that human beings do. No one gives birth children or gives birth to children for God. The ones that he wants, he causes their own birth himself, born of God, spiritual birth. Not of man, not of the will of man or the desire of man. And this is the matter that startled Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When the Lord told him that he needed to be born again from above to be saved. Born of God to be saved because he too was in the same tradition of Abraham and thinking we are Abraham's children. What's, what's going to happen to us? And God is saying all of salvation is by his grace and election. And the Jews were not naturally saved just because they traced their birth certificates to Abraham in the flesh. That was not good enough. And so we see this play out in John 8, as we have just read, that this is a hot topic among the Jews. They don't like anyone who comes and argues the way that Jesus argued against them. They hated him for it. So Paul, in the same tradition of Jesus, comes 
and is working and expanding the theological understanding in the matter of salvation and how the Jews especially ought to have understood and related to Abraham and consequently change their thinking about how they ought to relate to God or more importantly, how God relates to them. But it is a matter of relation. Do you relate to God in a justified state just because of your birth certificate? Or do you relate to God by how God chose to relate himself to you, which is by grace alone, apart from your birth certificate? So to this very matter, Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 3, 5 to 9. Paul said, Does God then give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by your believing what you had. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, so then understand that those who believe are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith proclaimed the gospel to Abraham ahead of time. So Abraham had the gospel. That's what he put faith in, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who believe are blessed along with Abraham the believer. Those who believe are the sons, are the children of Abraham in the spiritual sense. And to the extent that the promise of salvation that is Christ Jesus. When you're talking about the promise of salvation, first and foremost, you're talking about Jesus, who is the seed, the descendant of Abraham, was given through Abraham. Then association with Abraham's blessing can only be through the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of the gospel, not the righteousness of law-keeping. So Paul is trying to destroy all these arguments of law-keeping for anybody to be in a righteous standing with God. Okay, So Abraham is a central figure in that respect. How did Abraham get into God's blessing? Okay, let's go to verse 17 again of Romans 4. Verse 17 of Romans 4. Paul says, He is our Father in the presence of God whom he believed, the God who makes the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. Abraham is the father of faith. 
not as cause of our faith, as I said, but as an example of the faith that God gives, the faith that pleases God, the faith that evidences possession of the promise and the inheritance. And the God that Abraham believed is the God who makes the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. The God who makes the dead alive like the Jesus who came and said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. That sounds like the God who makes the dead alive. Let's go to Genesis 17 and then to 18 for more testimony of this story and the context of it. Genesis 17, beginning at verse 15. Genesis 17, beginning at 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for your wife, you must no longer call her Sarai or Sarai. Sarah will be her name. What an improvement. Just knock off the I and put the H on there. Because that's what I said. <laughs> Change the birth certificate. And call the social security department. <laughs> Verse 16, I'll bless her and will give you a son through her. I'll bless her and she will become a mother of nations. I will bless her. I will do it. Kings of countries will come. Yeah? Uh, what did I do? Kings of countries will come from her. Then Abraham bowed down with his face to the ground and laughed as he said to himself, Can a son be born to a man who is 100 years old? Can Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Abraham said to God, All that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham is thinking. The one son he had with Hagar, the Egyptian maid, would become the heir of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what he's thinking. He's like, look at me. I am 100 years, man. And my wife is 90. This is not going to happen I bet if it's going to happen, it has to be through Ishmael. Verse 19. God said, no. Sarah, your wife is going to bear you a son and you name him Isaac. I'll confirm my covenant with him as a perpetual covenant for his descendants after him. So God even has the name for the son. I'm going to call him Isaac. And I'm going to have a perpetual covenant 
with him essentially the perpetual covenant with Christ is the one that is in Isaac but the covenant that is the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant it was a grace alone covenant and a grace alone covenant is the perpetual covenant that Christ comes and fulfills was Isaac is in the picture of Christ verse 20 as for Ishmael i've heard you i will indeed bless him make him fruitful and give him a multitude of descendants you become the father of 12 princes i'll make him into a great nation but i will establish my covenant with isaac whom sarah will bear to you at this set time next year when he finished speaking with abraham god went up from him so god says isaac was to be born at this appointed time set time so when we get to leviticus those fists in leviticus 13 i believe the fists appointed fists fists in the hebrew means appointed times that's the time that god was going to do something in relation to christ every one of the feasts the passover the feast of unleavened bread the tabernacles first fruits they all spoke to something about christ and what was going to happen to christ so isaac was to be born at this appointed time as christ was born in the fullness of the appointed time in the fullness of time god sent that's the whole idea of appointed and everyone is born at god's appointed time both in the physical and in the spiritual for those who are appointed to salvation as many as were appointed to eternal life they believed so we have appointed times of regeneration as we have our appointed times of birth and appointed times of death there's no preacher who causes anyone to be regenerated regeneration happens by god in the appointed time and god was 100% certain of the time because he's the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own will and none can frustrate his purpose or his will but there's a teaching out there monism i think it is middle knowledge you can go look for it it is a teaching that tries to make a balance between god's sovereignty and human responsibility so called free will and says god has not exhaustively decreed everything there is he doesn't control all the details as we as determinists absolute determinists 
would say that God has appointed everything that comes to pass. They claim that God has left some things for human determination. And it may be gaining a little bit of steam. So we'll talk about it some more uh, in the future teachings and even offline we'll see. But this is what we know. The God of the Bible is the God of appointed times. He calls things that are not as if they are because he is 100% in control of all the details of his creation. And so Isaac was to be born in the appointed time as a miraculous child, but not as a sinless child. His birth, even though mirroring the birth of Christ, was not the same as that of Jesus, whose flesh was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Isaac was still born of the hardware of the womb of Sarah and Abraham after God had quickened their dead flesh. God had made them alive. Okay? Also, in respect of this matter, in Genesis 18, we had a visit of Abraham by three special guests, angels. We will not work all the details at this time because we end up getting bogged down <laughs> and add another 50 minutes to the message. But this is what I want you to see in relation to our conversation on Abraham and his faith. Let's go to Genesis 18, beginning at verse 9. The angels are in conversation with Abraham. And the subject is Sarah. Then the angels, they asked him, Where is Sarah, your wife? Abraham replied, There in the tent. One of them said, I will surely return to you when the season comes around again, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now, that's some very interesting angel. This angel is speaking and spoke as God, not just as someone who had been sent as a messenger. Because those words are exactly the words and phrases that God used when he made the promise earlier. He said, this time next year, I'll come. And this angel does not say, remember what God told you, that this time next year, he will come. No, he says, I'll surely return to you. That's a very interesting angel. Who could that be? Who could that be? Who speaks as if he is God and yet carries the title of angel? It is the pre-incarnate Christ Jesus. That's the Lord Jesus speaking. Okay? We'll develop that in some other messages. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, not far behind him. And Abraham, verse 11, 
And Abraham and Sarah were old and advancing in years. Sarah had long since passed menopause. So Sarah loved to herself thinking, after I'm worn out, will I have pleasure, especially when my husband is old too. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child when I'm old? And I'm thinking, verse 13 should be connected with verse 10. I will surely return to you when the season comes around. Because these are the people who are involved in the conversation. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you when the season comes around again and Sarah will have a son. So do you see verse 13 and 14 are related to verse 10. And yet this is coming from one of the messengers, from one of the angels. And the text says, and the Lord said. Okay, verse 15. Then Sarah lied, saying, I did not laugh. Because she was afraid. But the Lord said, no, you did laugh. <laughs> Abraham, 100 years old. Sarah, 90 years old. And past menopause. Very much past childbearing age and ability. Her womb was as good as dead. Yeah? That's the situation that is in Abraham's house. And yet they have the promises. And I don't want you to miss something here too. Sarah is spoken of as a woman of virtue and righteousness. But she lied to God. So she was like us all. A sinner. Sarah was a sinner. A liar too. And yet was not condemned. So this is what is being said. God came to Abraham or to Abraham in Genesis 12 and called him out of the air of the Chaldeans from Baghdad in Iraq. And God promised to bless him and his descendants, especially through his own heir. And the problem was, Sarah could not conceive, and this by God's own doing. And so that brought confusion to both Abraham and Sarah. Abraham initially thought, well, the blessing then will have to come to Eliezer of Damascus, Abraham's chief servant. Because when God approached him about this blessing, Abraham did not have Ishmael nor Isaac. He only had his chief servant. He's like, okay. 
I don't have an heir. The only person that I have here going for me is Eliezer of Damascus. But God said, no. The heir is going to be one from your own loins. So what had been Abraham's proposed solution because Abraham, seeing the conundrum that he found himself, he came up with a solution. He came up with a solution. Let's go back to Genesis 16. So you can see we are actually working our way back. (laughs) Genesis 16, verse 1, the birth of Ishmael. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had not given birth to any children, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from having children, you see the sovereignty of it? They did not play around with sovereignty. Because people would be like, Oh, that would be sinful for God to do that. How could God do that? Sarah says, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Now, have sexual relations with my servant. Perhaps I can have a family by her. Perhaps I can have an heir through Hagar. Abraham very agreeable. <laughs> if you listen to your wife, Abraham did what Sarai told him. Verse 3. So after Abraham had lived in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, Abraham's wife, gave Hagar, her Egyptian servant, to her husband to be his wife. He had sexual relations with, with Hagar and she became pregnant. Once Hagar realized she was pregnant, she despised Sarai. Then Sarai said to Abram, you have brought this wrong on me. I'm like, girl, what's wrong with you? You came up with this. You have brought this wrong on me. I allowed my servant to have sexual relations with you. But when she realized that she was pregnant, she despised me. May the Lord judge between you and me. What was Abraham trying to do? He was trying to bring the promise of God through the works of his own flesh, through the works of the law. He thought to work the promise himself through Hagar, an Egyptian handmaid of Sarah who represented the testament of the law according to Galatians chapter 4. So he went into the tent with her. And God rejected that testimony and said what? Galatians 3.18. This is God's response to that. It's there in Genesis 16, but I won't work it today. I just want to go to Galatians 3.18. For if the inheritance... For if the promise, for if the heir is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God 
graciously gave it to Abraham through the promise. Salvation is only by promise. It's not by going into the tent. And that is saying what? Salvation by grace alone, apart from the works of our own obedience to the promise. The promise of your salvation is not based on your obedience to the promise. You do not obey the promise to get the promise. You get the promise regardless of your obedience or disobedience. The promise comes anyway and is effectual regardless of your doing. So our feigned obedience to the promise can actually become an impediment to the promise. Because the promise is given freely without cause, wholly of God's free and sovereign grace. So this is where Abraham found himself with no heir. Eliezer not the heir. Hagar has been kicked out. Ishmael has been rejected. Sarah is past menopause. And God still says, oh, the promise is coming. Hang on. Trust me. It's coming. So both Abraham and Sarah find themselves in a hopeless situation. And even when Isaac had been born, God still commanded Abraham to do what? To go and sacrifice him. I'm like, how can you sacrifice the very seed, the heir that we promised? How is this thing working? So this did not make sense. But Abraham persevered in faith. That's Paul's point. Given all that context, Abraham persevered in faith. Let's go to Hebrews 11 for some commentary. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense, from which he also received him as a type. The offering of Isaac was a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Isaac was prefiguring the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is exactly the matter of true faith that Paul is discussing. It causes us to wait on the seemingly impossible to us. And that to say true faith begins when you run out of options. A person who still has options 
of salvation is still faithless. The woman with the issue of blood had faith in Christ only after she had run out of all options and the false physicians, the false preachers that had cleaned her out of her money. <laughs> yeah, they cleaned her out of her money, promising salvation, which never came. And yet she continued to go to one physician after another physician, from one preacher to the next preacher, hoping that they will find some rest, but no rest. She'd come to the end of herself. She came to the end of herself because the situation was not improving. She was not bettered by the prescriptions that were coming from the physicians. She was going to church, listening to a lot of sermons from preachers, but none was really saying the matter that gave her rest, that stopped her bleeding. But then she heard about Jesus. She had a free salvation. That Jesus was healing freely without payment because she had no more money to pay. She had nothing to contribute towards her salvation. Ran out of options. We only have hope in God alone when we have exhausted our options. And that's exactly where God wants us to be as his people, to trust him alone as the only option. Jesus is not an option among many other viable options. He is the only way. Okay? So Paul says, going back to Romans, we're almost done. Romans 4 verse 18, against hope, Abraham believed in God Sorry, against hope, Abraham believed in hope with the result that he became the father of many nations according to the pronouncement, so will your descendants be. Abraham believed in hope, but against hope in that it seemed like this was not going to work. His situation did not look hopeful. But he persevered even in his disappointment and frustration. This was not an easy thing for him. Relying on faith alone can be the most frustrating experience because faith looks to things that we naturally have no power to cause. We cannot expedite anything that we want to happen. So faith is an acknowledgement of our lack of ability, our lack of power in self, an acknowledgement of weakness. And so there had to be moments, many moments of unbelief with Abraham 
as with Sarah, as when Abraham took Hagar into the tent. That was a moment of unbelief. Unbelief who caused men and women of faith to try and do things for God that God himself said he would do. Salvation is of God's doing. But unfortunately, that is much of the present teaching on salvation by men and women, teaching men and women to go into the tent with Hagar instead of leaning on the everlasting arms of Christ and trusting that it is finished. It is finished. It is a very simple statement. And yet that is the very message that a lot of preachers and people are not preaching. The promise is finished. Redemption accomplished, justified, all of God's people perfected. So this is the God that Abraham was dealing with and that you and I are dealing with. The God who makes the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. God says, Paul Martin is righteous. That does not exist in your experience of that righteousness. But God says, trust me, it's already done. You are as righteous as he says you are righteous, not as you want to feel your righteousness. God quickened or made alive the dead womb of Sarah and enabled her to conceive. And this God summoned the birth of Isaac and the accompanying blessing as if it had already happened. This God promised many descendants of Abraham before they showed up, even their captivity and future deliverance from Egypt 430 years before it happened. Abraham was told that by God in Genesis 15. And so Abraham was summoned and called righteous and that looking to the sure coming of the Lord Jesus. But Abraham had the promissory knot of salvation but died without the promise actualized to him. As the writer of Hebrews says, he had the promise or not, but he did not possess those things. Here, what Hebrews 11, verse 11 to 13 say with respect to Abraham and the Old Testament saints. By faith, even though Sarah herself was barren, and he was too old, that is Abraham, he received the ability to procreate because he regarded the one who had given the promise to be trustworthy. 
So in fact, children were fathered by one man and this one as good as dead, like the number of stars in the sky and like the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. I found some nugget there that I have to talk to before I forget. So in fact, verse 12, so in fact, children were fathered by one man. All the children who belong to Abraham in Christ are fathered by one man, Christ Jesus. They are fathered by one man, Christ Jesus. The redeemed are not fathered by the preacher plus the Holy Spirit plus Jesus plus God the Father. In other words, this is what we are saying. Your faith Your salvation, your repentance, fathered by the one man, Christ Jesus. He's the one who did it. The preacher does not cause anything to happen to you in the spiritual sense. That's a lie. That's a lie. I'm going to be talking to it in the next message, hopefully. I still have two more messages to work on Sarah. Okay? But I just thought I would point that one out. Verse 18. This all died in faith without receiving the things promised. Hear that? These all died in faith, but without receiving the things promised. But they saw them in the distance and welcomed them and acknowledged that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. Strangers, pilgrims, sojourners. And if he died without receiving the promise, at some point, this had to be realized to him. Abraham dies here. He dies without receiving the promise, but he can't make it to the end without the promise. He has to receive the promise at some point in this journey from A to B. So what was Hindering him from receiving the promise or the inheritance. Because the testator of the promise, the testator of the inheritance, the will and last testament, the Lord Jesus Christ had not yet died. The Christ had not yet died. So they only had the promissory not of a future payment to come. But still had to wait for the coming of Christ. But Abraham died in faith, not having received those things promised, but he saw the things promised in the distance. We see the things promised us in the distance by faith. That's what faith does. It sees the promises in the distance. The evidence of things not seen. Substance of things hoped for. Seeing things in the distance. As Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. Abraham saw Christ from a distance. Abraham saw my day from a distance. And he was glad And Abraham 
welcomed the things that he saw in the distance and concluded that there was no life for him on this earth. But he was a stranger and a foreigner. That's what faith is supposed to do. It sees, it beholds the distant things. It evidences possession of the distant things. That's why we don't feel righteousness in ourselves. Because righteousness is in the distance. It shall be realized in glorification. Verse 20 of Romans 4. He did not waver in unbelief about the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So in spite of the challenges of continuing in faith, Abraham did not stagger or waver in unbelief like a drunken person staggers for lack of stability. They are wobbly. (laughs) Abraham, I'm sure, was wobbly at some points in his life, but he did not stagger as to fall. Yeah? Verse 21, and that will be our last verse from Romans. He was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. So that is the matter of the testimony that the Holy Spirit works in all the redeemed to cause us to fully trust that what God promised in our salvation is able to do in spite of the circumstances that we may be dealing with. And the biggest circumstances that we deal with that causes unbelief is our constant warring with sin. That's the number one thing. Constant warring with sin. But sin is ever present with us to cause us to doubt. But we cannot waver because of what we are experiencing, that is why it is important to always come and hear the truth of the gospel. It's very important. We have to continue looking outside of ourselves because naturally we want to look to ourselves. We have to look to Christ, the author and finisher of faith. We have to know what God has promised to do And what he has done. We have to understand these things. What does redemption mean? What does justification mean? What is the ransom payment? What is propitiation? What is imputation? When we really understand those things, it makes it easier on us in our faith. Okay? We will stand and have confidence to the extent that we know and understand what the gospel declaration actually is. Our faith will be tested as happened to Abraham. God will test our faith in a million ways. He has a million tricks in his bag to test us. See what happened to Abraham. And even in our context here, he has a million things to use, to test. We may be asked to offer some of our Isaacs. God will say, you go and offer this Isaac. 
<laughs> but not really to kill you or to destroy you, but to strengthen your faith in him. God will challenge you through even your own possessions, your own money, to see if you are really too tightly or handling or hoarding too tightly to your earthly possessions. Not because he needs any of it. He may take some things away for a season and then he will bring them back to you. I am here to testify. He has taken a whole lot more things and given me back a whole lot more things. Okay? So God will take us through seasons of barrenness, of sickness, of trials. And we may think the solution will be going back into the tent with Hagar. Because Hagar is always there. Hagar is always in the tent. And our natural disposition is to always want to go back in the tent, as Abraham did. And some will say, as I heard from some dear friend and sister a few days ago, she said, my things are not working very well. <laughs> I think I need to go back to tithing. Because my life was better when I was tithing. She's thinking that would draw her back into God's favor. Going back into God's favor by payment. That's not how things work. God's favor cannot be bought with money. That is the going back into the tent. With Hagar, she's not being patient. She's not waiting on what God is working in her life. But I'm going to tell you that if we should overcome, we can only overcome by the faithfulness of Christ Jesus to us. Because Christ has a bigger investment in us than we have in him. We are his possession. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. So whatever is happening to us is just of a temporary nature, temporary afflictions. We already have the victory in Christ. This is the way of the master. You get tested. You go into the tent with Hagar, and you go out, you go back again, you go back, you sacrifice Isaac, but at the end of the day, the promise we already possess because it is of grace alone. Okay? All right. Amen. We are done. We shall be back to Abraham and Sarah again next week. We're going to be in Genesis. And then I believe we're going to be back again with Sarah. I have a message on Sarah alone. So I'll be praying that the Lord will give me wisdom. Okay, lots of gospel nuggets. God be praised for his faithfulness to others. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you for your goodness towards us. We thank you for the many words that have been spoken this morning. Thank you for the faith that is given us, the faith that endures to the end, the faith that beholds the promise the faith that was given to Abraham that gave him the testimony 
of righteousness. And we pray and thank you for the righteousness that we also possess by the same faith. We thank you, Lord, for our seasons where we have wavered because of unbelief, and yet we continue in faith because you uphold us. We are kept by the power of God through faith. We pray for all those who have listened to this message and all who shall listen. Lord, may you open their ears and eyes that they may hear the truth of Christ. I thank you for giving me strength to speak. I thank you for upholding me in my health. I pray that you continue to recover me. I pray for the saints also who are dealing with all kinds of issues who may be wavering because of the many difficult challenges that they're dealing with. Many are single moms, single fathers. Many have also lost their loved ones. We remember them that you grant them strength, that they should not waver in their faith in Christ. We honor you, glorify you for your kindness towards me and your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God people, love you in Christ. See ya.